Hey everybody, this is Armando Torres, and you're listening to the show before the show. And I'm Paige Wesley. And with us we have... Andre Gazetta! Yay! We've got a great episode for you this week. It's... God damn it, dude. I love I fucking love this series, dude. We, we were talking about it just off mic a second ago, and this is one of my favorite series that I think we've ever done. It's very... I'm having so much fun researching it. And yes, people have died, but it's not making me hurt inside, and so it's nice. <laughs> uh, but before we get into it, we have a lot of news, and a lot of it's really, really fucking awesome. Boo, boo, boo. We're excited to finally be able to share it with y'all. Um, first up, we are uh, partnering with Rooster Teeth. Woohoo! Yes, we are partnering. We just scared the shit out of my dog, by the way. (laughs) Visually upset. Uh, We are partnering with Rooster Teeth and The Roost. Uh, Starting on October 5th, I believe, you will be able to hear Colt Podcast on their official website, roosterteeth.com. But that does not change anything about where you listen to the show. Wherever you listen to our show, that will still be available. And as always, you can listen on our website for free, coltpodcastshow.com. Uh, the biggest difference is that we are going to be able to do some crazier, wilder shit. And yes. so this is all good. It's it's super exciting. Uh, we just did the RTX panel, which was so much fun. So we're so excited to finally be able to announce this partnership. Uh, the second piece of news, also speaking of partnerships, Colt Podcast is teaming up with the Horror Virgin. Woohoo! We're going to be doing a double feature Halloween show. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're doing uh, an episode of Cult Podcast and an episode of Horror Virgin Halloween night virtually. So you can buy tickets on our website. We've also got exclusive t-shirts that are going to be available for pre-order until October 8th. Listen to the end of the episode for more info or go to cultpodcastshow.com for details. Yeah, tickets are going to be 20 bucks, shirts are going to be 25 or you can get both of them in a package for $40 flat. Um, super, super excited for this, too. It's been in the works for a while, and we're just so, 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 so happy to be able to announce it. Um, yeah, so I think without any further ado, let's just fucking vroom on into the show. Vroom. That was the best harmony we've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> Don't drink the Kool-Aid. For the purposes of this podcast, we define a cult as organizations that rally behind an entity or leader who espouse beliefs outside the norm. Organizations that require physical or monetary sacrifice as a condition of membership. Organizations in which the doctrines followed by the leaders are different than that of the followers. Organizations in which isolation is encouraged either by commune living or by a policy of disconnection from outside relationships. And organizations that actively recruit new members. All cults might have some or all of these traits. And as always, these these are are our opinions. opinions. Thank you for tuning into Cult Podcast. I'm Paige Wesley. And I'm Armando Leather Poppy Torres. <laughs> and with us we have... Andrea Gazetta! <laughs> Somebody was saying that Armando don't know nothing about motorcycle culture. I beg to differ. I do. I do want to just make sure 
motorcycle culture has changed dramatically over the past hundred years. Yes. Because it has been around that long. And so I do want to make sure we are talking about very specific times in history. Yeah. And so if we mention something that's maybe not the case now, it's probably because it was the case in that specific time in history. Yeah, remember when we were like, they're powered by steam and they fucking hurt your balls. Yes. Remember, that's not the case anymore. Yeah, now they're just not powered by steam. But they still hurt your yeah. balls, though. I do so want to be clear much. about that. Yeah, please stop emailing me to be like, it's fiberglass suits now. And I'm like, I don't care i'm talking about the 50s and in this episode i'm going to talk about from 56 to 69 specifically oh that's shit. it yeah. that is fucking it so like i don't need i you know, correct me if i'm wrong saying. but in 69 they started making motorcycle outfits out of just like pure orgasms uh so what's actually kind of interesting is in this time period we're going to see the move from the full piece motorcycle jacket mm -hmm. to the denim colors, which is their vest mm -hmm. to the leather colors, which is their leather vest, which would then go on top of an additional leather jacket. Interesting. I love layering yeah. and I'm, it's so glad to see. I'm so glad to see that they also have fashion sense too. I also love that they're going full girl scout with like, I need patches, but yeah. I need it to be removable. We're going over patches this week as well. Yes. So hype. Let's get into sources because there are a lot of sources. So as we kind of covered at the end of last week, we're starting off today talking about Sonny Barger. And he has written a bunch of books about his time in the Hells Angels. He's also featured in a bunch of other people's books and movies. And so he is a wealth of information and sources. We have Hells Angel, The Life and Times of Sonny Barger and the Hells Angels Motorcycle Club. We have Dead and Five Heartbeats. We have Freedom, Credos from the Road. We have Six Chambers, One Bullet. And we have Let's Ride, Sunny Barger's Guide to Motorcycling. And then all, so all of those were Sunny Barger's. And then he also was an editor on one of the book we used, um, Riding High, Living Free, Hell Raising Stories. Uh, we also <laughs> have the documentary from last week, which was In Search of History, The Hell's Angels. We also have Hunter S. Thompson's book. We're going to talk about that book a lot today. Uh, it's Hell's Angels, A Strange and Terrible Saga. We also have the article by Time Magazine, A Brief History of the Hell's Angels. Um, also, just a quick note, Sonny Barger, who we're talking a lot about today, appeared in Sons of Anarchy what? as a character named Lenny the Pimp Janowitz. <laughs> You know what's weird is he was a dentist, actually. <laughs> so uh, we also have an article from the LA Times. Uh, we have Sunny Barger's own website, SunnyBarger.com. We also have a an entry from the show Codes and Conspiracies on the Lynch Report and what it did to the Hell's Angels. We have an article from an organized crime book review site on Sunny Barger's first um, autobiography. We have the Gimme Shelter documentary from the Rolling Stones, and we have gangenforcement.com for a basically diagram of motorcycle club patches and what they mean. Are you ready? Yes. So very ready. I'm so excited. All right. So Sonny Barger was born October 8th, 1938 in Modesto, California as Ralph Hubert Barger Jr., just in case you were wondering why he goes by Sonny. I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's why. Yeah. Pretty sure. Um, his mother, 
actually left him with his alcoholic father and he has an older sister when he was just four months old. So she just like popped the baby out and was like, it's your problem. Bye. And peace <laughs> out. Yeah, I, did, I did like that. His mom was like, peace out, bitches. I got dinner plans with a bag of meth. <laughs> Modesto. Bye. <laughs> meth is going to be a big part of this story. <laughs> yeah. It's his stepdad. But who doesn't yeah. like crystals? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, do you think meth heads sometimes refer to it as charging of the crystals? Um, <laughs> I think that's what the cops call it. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so he got in trouble in school a lot as a kid um, for acting out, assaulting teachers, and fighting other students. Okay. <laughs> he started a gang called Hex. We're Hex Angels, guys. Hex Angels. Uh, I would argue that it is probably from a very, very bad home life. And he's displaying a lot of evidence of childhood trauma. Um, he also says that he had basically lost interest in school but loved reading. And so he actually got a job and would read and work at a grocery store. And so outside of school, he was pretty well behaved and he didn't really get in trouble until later in life. Um, he says he used to watch policemen on motorcycles pull people over in front of his house. There was like a stop sign and a speed trap. And he would basically bribe them and tell on people so that he could get closer to their motorcycles because he thought their motorcycles were really cool. Oh, buddy. <laughs> there's, yeah. two, there's two things that I like in this world. It's reading. I love the very hungry caterpillar. And then also bribery to get closer to motorcycles. <laughs> yeah. He would like find excuses to talk to the police to be like, can I touch the motorcycle? I like the motorcycle. <laughs> but I think it's also because no one's really paying attention to him at home. So yeah. he's just like... But the motorcycles. Um, <laughs> Snitches get to touch motorcycles. Yeah. And now I will say he adopts a pretty strict no snitching policy later in life. <laughs> like very strict. Um, yeah. The only exception is if it results in getting to touch a motorcycle, then it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> now, in 1955, he enlisted in the army at the age of 16 wow. by lying about his age. And he was discharged 14 months later when it was discovered that he is he had forged his birth certificate in order to be able to join. So he actually fought in Korea as like a teenager and then they sent him back. Yeah, because it was just a <laughs> fucking piece of paper that he made out of crayon and construction paper. Well, and also his voice still sounded like this. <laughs> now he did at the same time from like 1954 to 1956 with some of his friends in high school uh he had started like a small street corner gang called the earth angels <laughs> after that song there's a famous song from the time earth angel um but they kind of just it was like a friend club where it was like we're in a gang but we kind of just hang out as friends um it wasn't until 1956, once he got back from the war, that he joined his first bike club. It was a club called the Oakland Panthers, but it didn't really have anything that he was looking for. He he basically said that they would party, but then there was no loyalty among them. They didn't stick together, so they were just in it to party. 
and he says that he really wanted more of a feeling of brotherhood and connection which kind of makes sense because he doesn't super have a family life and so I think he's looking for that kind of second family in friendships at this point yeah and especially if he's already joined the army you know he's like I want something with a built-in brotherhood that's what I'm looking yeah, for absolutely and so for a while, he found a couple friends and they rode around talking about starting up the, one of their own clubs. And one of the bikers he was riding with, a guy named Boots Don Reeves, <laughs> he found a Hell's Angels patch in Sacramento. And I don't know how you just find one, but he did. And he decided that they should name their new club after the patch, the Hell's Angels. <laughs> I think they must have heard about it somewhere or something before because it seems a little serendipitous to just be like, we found it and then we made up this name uh, because they go to a local trophy shop and they have a new set of patches made that look like the patch they found and they have them all say Hell's Angels, not realizing that there were other Hell's Angels motorcycle clubs around California, according to him. Imagine being the employee at the trophy making store where he's like, all right, I can make your Hell's Angels patches, but I do have to make the championship second grade soccer trophies before that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I think it's a little far-fetched to think that they just thought of something that already existed. Yeah. yeah. But it is possible, I guess. Um, at this time, the clubs were very loosely affiliated. And so they didn't have like a singular, you know, person in charge. Right now, it was mostly the club in San Francisco and the club in Fontana. And I think it's pretty likely that maybe they had encountered people from the club in San Francisco. And that's kind of where they got their idea about the name. Regardless, they start a chapter in Oakland. But that chapter was never actually voted in by the other chapters. They just got on their bikes one day, rode down to Fontana, and were like, hey, uh, we're going to start one of these two. Uh, so we're kind of like you guys now. We're in the club. And because it was such a loose affiliation of clubs at this point, the Fontana Club was like, I mean, yeah, I guess if you guys want to. <laughs> <laughs> sure. This makes yeah, no I, sense. This is like you make pizza in your house and you're like, fuck, I'm a Domino's now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you want to buy pizza for me? I'm a Domino's. So they come back from their trip down south and they open the first clubhouse in Oakland. And everyone in their club is about 18 to 21 years old. Oh, wow. They're babies. They're babies. And they are there to party. For a while, that's good, but it's not enough for Sonny. And Sonny, remember, is a vet. Freshly back from war. He's about 5'10", all muscle. And he's one of the few that's been in more of a structured organization like the military. And so he's kind of a natural leader. And he decides that he wants the Hells Angels to be the number one club in the world. He wants the sun to never set on the Hells Angels. Basically, that there are always angels around. Wow. Which, at this point, since there's only three clubs and only two of them are official and it's not the one he's in yeah. 
a little far-fetched. It's a little great. Okay, Gary, you're going to fly to Japan. We got it all set up. If we spread ourselves yeah. thin enough, the, the sun will never set never on Never set Hell's on Angel. a Hell's Angel. Marvin was sending you to Australia. I don't know where you're <laughs> going to go. Just go kick a kangaroo in the ass and ride that around. So in 1957, the next year, he starts organizing. He contacts the other clubs, and he starts laying the groundwork for a more cohesive network of motorcycle clubs. And that same year, the club attends an AMA event in Angels Camp, California, which is in Northern California. And these are kind of the same events that we saw from the Hollister riots last time, where they show up, they ride in races, they do tricks. And a few of the Hells Angels riders were racing. They came around a corner at the top of a hill too fast. Both bikers caught air and landed in a crowd of people. Oh, my God. Both of the riders died and the other people were injured and it becomes a news story, but it actually gets word of the club out and they start to grow even further. So in the next 10 years between 1957 and the early 60s, multiple new clubs spring up with members electing their own officials within the club and those officials start reporting to Sonny and paying dues that partially go to Sonny. Now it wasn't just a club. This is an organization. This is a business. And so he further seeks to unify the group. He popularizes a uniform. He essentially, according to many of the sources I read, I'm sure other people want to take credit for this too, because this is also something that's happening in other groups. But he popularizes the idea of something called colors, which are vests emblazoned with the patches that are unique to their organization. So for Hells Angels, that's the Red Wing Death Skull. But they also have a one percenter patch which is usually placed on either the lapel or the back of the vest between the shoulders. And that's one of the highest honors. It's basically you're a one percenter outlaw biker. They also have patches unique to them and things that you've achieved in the group reportedly. And some of these are pretty secretive too. So you don't always know about them if you're not in the motorcycle club. There's a black and white patch that says filthy few featuring a lightning bolt and that typically means that someone has killed for the good of the club oh wow but there are i mean almost as many patches as the girl scouts have or more um you can look up diagrams of them online there's one that's just ftw that says fuck the world um there's also you would wear patches for your specific organization like your specific chapter um if you're super interested and you've seen Sons of Anarchy, you've seen a lot of this, where they have, like, Sam Crow, which is their essentially acronym for their chapter and their location. So, yeah. Um, It's super fascinating. We could spend all day on just that. I got this one for fucking straight up killing a guy. But I got this one for selling the most cookies out of all the hells. (laughs) (laughs) It was pretty fucking, that was a good summer. There's also, if you're uh, a veteran or if you're an, like an officer in your club, they have military styled patches mm. that can go on the vest, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> it's as well. pretty crazy to me because I know, I know that it's, 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 it's absolutely, it is really dark to have a patch that's like a signifier of like, I killed a person. But what is kind of funny to me is, again, 
they are being made by guys who own trophy stores. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the same guy who made that patch also had to make like world's best dad, you know? Like that's you're just another client to that guy. I also love the idea that the two people died and everyone are like, I want to sign up for that. Right? <laughs> Like, what? That did fuck me up. Who reads that newspaper article and is like, damn, that was pretty awesome. I I feel like it has to be the idea of like no press is bad press where it's just getting the name out there. And if you're looking to join a motorcycle gang, maybe the only name you recognize is Hell's Angels because it's been in the news. It's called branding, Alan. They do. I mean, they kill it at branding. Like, their branding is so good that literally almost everyone else copies them. Like, it's crazy. I got this patch right here for going to graphic design camp. It was... Uh, something else they start doing is now uh, having people tattoo some of these same symbols from the patches on them. So tattoos become ubiquitous with their group. I'm just imagining a guy takes off all his, like he's wearing his patches and then but someone's then it's like, exact why is just the exact same placement? <laughs> <laughs> and it looks like someone just tattooed a vest onto him. Yeah. I'll be real. In one of the documentaries I watched, a guy takes his jacket off and has the bulk of the big back patch tattooed. So it was almost like he took his jacket off and then had the same thing. So that does kind of happen. Um, When I die, I want them to take off my skin and make me into a leather jacket. Oh, skin suit. Skin suit. That is what leather is already, I guess. That's what I'm saying. There is a world where somebody could die in a motorcycle. I'd probably fucking crash into a crowd. In a motorcycle accident. And then fucking (laughs) take their their torso off and turn that into a leather jacket. That is a real possibility. Carrie, what what are all these holes in your jacket? Oh, you know, just some road rash from when other Gary (laughs) fell off his motorcycle. (laughs) Gary, are you wearing the skin of another man named Gary? Gary, why does your jacket smell like death and formaldehyde? It's pretty bad. Yeah, sometimes there's there's some big holes, and we really just patch that up with the skin from the scrot. Uh, that was. Oh, so that explains the hairs. That explains a lot. That explains a lot. Sometimes my jacket does sag when it gets a little hot outside. <laughs> so. Into the early 1960s, the club grows into six West Coast chapters. The original Fontana chapter, four chapters in the Bay Area, and one in Sacramento. Relatively 450 members at a time. And it's at this point that Barger basically starts to create a charter for these chapters. He's quoted as saying... We decided that if we were all going to wear the same patch, we were all going to function under the same rules. And so to shore up our territory fast, we made tactical rules early on. For example, there couldn't be one charter within 50 miles of another, except for Oakland and San Francisco, which were already that close. There were fights between chapters. Um, A lot of the fights are over the patches. Like... (laughs) What? Oh, over like which patch was correct because they had the original design, but then they would have them made at their local patch place by their guy doing the trophies and letterman jackets. And so there were differences between them. So they wanted to kind of, you know, streamline and unify and standardize those patches. 
as well as they were starting to make up their own extra patches, so they wanted to streamline that and standardize that as well. I forgot about the arts and crafts war of the 60s. <laughs> right? But most of the fights that they had were with other motorcycle clubs who were smaller. For example, the Gypsy Jokers, who were driven out of California by the Hells Angels. They kind of function like ancient Rome, where it's almost a... a a thing of like join us or die it is very interesting to me how we kind of see this uh every so often where a cult leader will have served time in uh the military and uh comes out with these extraordinary leadership skills and the ability to just separate everyone into these kind of almost military-like groups and how effectively it works uh, for mm -hmm. groups like these to take over territory because it is basically the same concept. You know, that is what they're doing. And it was really smart to separate them because as we've seen uh, when we covered the Bloods and the Crips, people think that only Bloods and Crips fight each other. Crips kill each other all the time and they fight over the stupid... I'm not kidding you. There was one war between two different sets of Crips that was over which shade of blue is the correct blue to wear. Are you serious? Th yeah. This doesn't surprise me at all because that's very much a thing and it's Dodger blue and it's like yeah. that same blue. Uh, and if you look up Dodger blue, that comes up. But that, I mean, that's the same as them fighting over the patch where it's like it is standardization and branding. And it is very important. In the mid-1960s, about a decade after Sonny Barger joins the club, chapters start to be formed outside California and in some cases outside the United States. And so they have to start making rules for what happens when people outside of their immediate vicinity want to join. So they set up a system where they vote on whether or not they want to induct a new chapter in that area. And when the prospective club lets them know that they want to be Hell's Angels, they send emissaries to check them out and see if they kind of like jive with the Hell's Angels. And they'll send those officers out. They'll party with them. They'll hang out with them. Sometimes they'll send people from the new club back to hang out and see if they want to merge and then once they decide if they want to there's not like a formal time period just if they decide it it is advantageous and they get along they'll then have them sign a charter but once they sign a charter they're responsible for keeping anyone else with a charter out of their area so like they're responsible for controlling that 50 mile radius against other clubs yeah including other hell's angels clubs no okay no because there would never be a hell's angels club within 50 miles of Got another hell's okay angels that makes club. sense yeah so but they're doing it to kind of control their territory this is such a kick-ass process where it's just like all right guys so you're gonna send your most party hardy guy to us and then we're gonna just spend a week getting smashed if he's able to hang with us then you guys can be real hell's angels and i'm gonna tell you the first rule of being a hell's angels you gotta get a graphic design guy <laughs> so the oakland chapter with Sonny Barger serving as its club president, becomes kind of an informal leader of all of the chapters. So according to Sonny Barger, this ties back to a standoff they had with local police and the CHP in the aftermath of an outlaw motorcycle meeting in Porterville, California in 1963. 
Now, in 1963, a hundred Hell's Angels descend on the city of Porterville, California, and they eventually basically take over the town for a week or so. Kind of like what happened at Hollister, except instead of a bunch of different bikers, it's all Hell's Angels. Now, this actually makes headline news nationally, but it didn't make nearly as much news as what happened the very next year. The next year, in 1964... While attending a rally in Monterey, California, four Hell's Angels are arrested for raping two teenage girls. Oh, wow. And this gets national headlines and makes them infamous. What happened was 300 Hell's Angels arrived in Monterey over Labor Day weekend to party and raise money to bury one of their fellow bikers. And it was basically a repeat of what happened in Hollister, again, on a grander scale. Except this time, real charges were filed. What allegedly took place is that two girls were partying with the Hells Angels, and we don't know much of what else happened next. There's about four or five different versions of the stories. The girls say they were raped. A lot of people believe them. I'm inclined to believe them. The Hells Angels claim that the girls were of age, and that's what they were told, and all's fair. You came to this party... And it's the 60s, uh, which is yada, yada. That's not consent. <laughs> La- yeah, I'm, that's why I said it's the 60s, yada, yada, ladies be lying. Yeah, that was the, so, their whole fucking, their argument was they were like, okay, the Hells Angels are guilty of statutory rape. And they're like, no, nah, hold on. It was just regular rape. Okay, there we yeah, go. Well, no, essentially the argument was like, she knew what she was doing. No. Like, it's, it's that that's... kind of nonsense. And so... At this point, the attorney general starts taking a closer look at the angels and the Hells Angels didn't have money to hire lawyers for the four angels who'd been accused, but they thought of a good way to make some money fast. (laughs) Speed, speed. It was speed. They chose to sell speed. So they trafficked a few batches of homemade methamphetamines to pay for the legal defense of their members. And this marks a turning point in the group because prior to this and prior to the rapes, the club had largely been involved in low level crimes, DUI, drunken disorderly, indecent exposure, traffic tickets, etc. But trafficking speed was big time. And a year later, the charges were dropped by the court, which, again, I do want to stress, does not mean that the rapes did not happen. You will hear a lot of people in documentaries and all of these sources be like, yeah, they said it was rape, but those charges are dropped. And I was like, that's those two are not the same thing. Um, So regardless, they get the charges dropped. But by then... The angels had learned an important lesson. Speed was easy money, and money gave them power. And they started to build a crime empire. So obscure smaller Hells Angels chapters suddenly became the talk of their local newspapers and the number one wanted by their local police. And in the aftermath of the trial in 1965, Thomas C. Lynch, the California Attorney General at the time, released a report that says the angels are, quote, a menace to society. And it is a 15-page report that is mostly lies, but it's lies that have persisted to this day. So the report basically tells horrifying stories of 
sex, drugs, initiation rites, stories of women being passed around to different club members, but it even goes into just basic insults saying that you can tell bikers from other people because they don't shower. Um, okay. Yeah, it, it's, it gets into real personal attacks. Some of the things that it does cover are their drug trafficking, which is accurate, and that there is the use of swastikas occasionally in some of their patches and pins. Um, but... Some of the women who ride along with the angels refute these stories. They actually have come out and officially said that there is no initiation for women. So, I mean, technically you can't necessarily join as a woman unless you wanted to. I think you can now, but at the time there was no way to join as a woman. You could just ride alongside them, typically as someone's girlfriend. But there wasn't like a pass around system that they allege in this report. They also deny that there's a specific initiation ritual for clubs at all, saying that it's just more of a trial period where the club determines whether or not they like you and then votes. There's also options for members to transfer from one chapter to another. But because of, quote, rats and infiltrators, you have to be in the chapter you're transferring from for at least one year. That was actually the same rule at my sorority. <laughs> it's like if you if you wanted to chapter to another chapter, you had to be in, be in for a year. But essentially. They basically say that to become a prospect is kind of you become their gopher. They kind of just check you out to see if you're cool, to see if you, you know, jive with their overall vibe as a chapter and they have no predetermined amount of time that you could be a prospect they'll choose to vote on it whenever and that's corroborated by a bunch of other angels so it seems like a lot of the stuff in the report was sensationalized to try and push an agenda now i do want to say i'm not saying they're great people and everything in the report is false but i am saying that it does seem to be specifically aimed at painting their character a certain way. Yeah. There are plenty of things that they're going to do that's going to show us that they're maybe not great, but this is definitely an overstep, I would say. Yeah. I also, I did want to uh, talk just for a second on that thing about how there's, th there is no set time on when they make you a full member, which is something that we see a lot in gangs. Um, it's actually, this is not a bit, it's, it's shockingly similar to Guillermo's position in what we do in the shadows. Oh, the familiar. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Where they're like, they're like, well, one day you'll be like a full fledged gang member, but you know. Well, not today. Well, and it's yeah, yeah it's yeah, basically right. it, it, it breaks you down into a point where you're like, well, I got to do whatever they say, because that action can be the action that gets me made. You know what? I, yes, that, yeah. That's why mm -hmm. they do that. There is no set time so that they can fully break you and mold you into what they need. Well, and at a certain point, it's like you've invested so much time into helping this group that if you wanted to leave, now you've made this investment for nothing. Yeah. So there is sort of like an investment bias, too, that that, uh, to that sunken cost fallacy. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Now, they do have written rules for the chapters some of them are public um, at least some of them have become public including the obligation to attend regular meetings not to fight with other club members and not to mess with other members wives or girlfriends there's also other rules like if you're going to put your lunch in the fridge you have to write your name on it <laughs> yeah um, five second rule of course that's the most famous yeah never microwave fish in the break room oh my God. we get it 
Um, now, another rule that seems to come up a lot is that Hell's Angels are obliged to support fellow members under all circumstances, which is part of how crime empires start. So, after the Lynch report comes out, they are now feared by the public and constantly pestered by the police. They just cannot escape them. They're just constantly being followed. And through the mid-60s, this becomes the accepted image of the Hell's Angels. This is why a young writer at the time accepted an assignment to write an article about the Hell's Angels. That writer was Hunter S. Thompson. (laughs) So he writes the article on them decides that he's not done covering them and he decides that he wants to ride with Sonny Barger so he starts hanging out in motorcycle bars and he pitches them a book that would allow him to ride with them for a year and basically catalog everything that happens in that year now this is in the mid 60s it's around 1965 1966 and the Vietnam War is in full swing and protests erupt across the nation. And this is the year that Hunter S. Thompson starts riding with the Angels. Now, Berkeley becomes an epicenter for protests, and the Angels from Oakland at first keep their distance, but then they decide that they are fucking done with this shit. But here's the kicker. The Angels really aren't on anyone's side. They're not counterculture. They're not the hippies because most of them are veterans and they're very patriotic and they do a ton of drugs, especially LSD, but mostly meth and they're dealing it to people widely. And so instead of showing up to join the protests, they show up and start clashing with protesters, which confuses the hell out of the conservatives because the same people who hate them and want to see them gone because of this Lynch report now are agreeing with them because they're the enemy of their enemy. At one point, Sonny Barger and his chapter actually volunteer to go to Vietnam as a group to just fuck up the Viet Cong. What? Yes, there is video of it. It is great. Uh, They write a letter to Lyndon B. Johnson. They're like, we will go over there and handle the Viet Cong. Uh, And... (sighs) No one takes them up on this offer. Yeah. We just all we ask is for first class tickets for our motorcycles, but but coach tickets for us. You know they're be- they're better <laughs> than we are. They're better than we. But they they honestly they they were pro Vietnam but anti conservatives who were kind of trying to harsh their motorcycle buzz. So there's this weird middle group that like hurts and helps everyone at the same time they're just kind of a wild card in the middle of a like super politically tumultuous time so hunter s thompson who basically in interviews is like i was scared the whole time it was terrifying (laughs) Uh, he's a fucking wild dude there's an interview of him later in his life where he's in his backyard and he's like oh hold on i gotta shoot at my neighbor and he pulls out a handgun (laughs) and starts taking fucking pop shots at his neighbor and he's like i don't even remember how this started bang 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 (laughs) what by the way, by the way, the interviews we have for him about this book are later in life. So even after he's like, I'm going to shoot my neighbor, he's like, oh, my God, the Hell's Angels are fucking terrifying. Yeah, I don't like, like, I honestly, me, myself, I don't think I could ever hold on. Bang, 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 bang. Yeah, yes, yes. It's fucking wild. Now, he's been writing for them for about a year. 
And his book needs an ending, and he gets it. Because a biker by the name of Junkie George gets in an argument with his wife and hits her. At the same time, their dog tries to attack Junkie George to defend the wife. Good job, dog. Good dog. Yeah, good, good boy. Good boy. And Junkie George kicks the dog. And Hunter S. Thompson says only punks hit their wives and kick dogs. So George starts beating Hunter up and a couple <laughs> other angels join in. Oh, my God. At the end of the fight, they put Hunter S. Thompson in his car and tell him that he better leave and he better finish his book. Oh, my God. <laughs> so holy he shit. goes. He goes to the cops and the police won't let him into the station because he's covered with, quote, too much blood and they don't want it to get everywhere. And I'm like, what? So he publishes the book the next year in 1966 and it makes him a celebrity within the book. He manages to disprove a lot of the stuff that happens in the Lynch report. But he also reveals many, many, many stories of the angels becoming dark and violent at the drop of a hat. It's kind of a catch-22 where he's like, they're not doing what you say they're doing, but they're also doing some fucked up shit. So heads up. Two years later, in 1968, the Oakland Hells Angels are hired to consult on as well as star in alongside a Jack Nicholson movie. So they're in a movie with Jack Nicholson called Hell's Angels on Wheels. And Sonny Barger ends up playing one of the lead roles in the film with Jack Nicholson, which basically gets them more press than ever and brings me to 1969 and the tragedy at the Altamont Speedway. Oh, God. Now, in order to understand what happened at the Altamont Speedway, we have to understand a little bit about the world at the time and the entertainment industry at the time. In August of 1969, the Summer of Love, America saw the first Woodstock in Bethel, New York. Woodstock, although it has its problems, was largely considered a success. And the initial idea for the concert that would eventually take place at Altamont Speedway was to have effectively a Woodstock West. And this ends up being the result of multiple people planning multiple events that converge, which is part of the issue. According to Jefferson Airplane's Spencer Dryden, he and his bandmate Yorma Kaukonen discussed putting on a free concert with the Grateful Dead and the Rolling Stones in Golden Gate Park. Now, if you've never been to Golden Gate Park, it's just a park. There's no gates. There's no nothing like you can't. It's not a concert venue. This is a bad idea. (laughs) Mind you, they had not asked the Rolling Stones about this yet, but Dryden was quoted as saying, next to the Beatles, they're the biggest rock and roll band in the world. And we wanted them to experience what we were experiencing in San Francisco, which was the height of the hippie movement and the LSD explosion. The Stones were having a pretty different experience. See, the Stones had already been popular for a while, and their 1969 U.S. tour was widely criticized for being too expensive, even by journalists reviewing the concert. Basically, everyone's saying, good show, not worth the money. And so when they were presented with the idea of having a free concert in Golden Gate Park, they figured that this was the perfect way to end their tour and to get rid of the rumors that they were sellouts to the man for high ticket prices. But this created a problem. 
because Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead are popular, but they're not the Rolling Stones. A free Rolling Stones concert was bound to be absolute mayhem based on just the amount of people alone, and this started to create problems for the event planning. As the Stones started to take over the planning of the event, Jefferson Airplane were on the road. They were touring. And by early December, they had made it all the way to Florida, far away from California, where this event was going to take place. They believed that concert plans for the Golden Gate Park show were going along fine and nothing was wrong. But by December 4th, the plans for the concert were in serious jeopardy. During the time Jefferson Airplane was on tour, the venue actually changed four different times. Originally, the Stones had tried to schedule the show for San Jose University's practice field, which is basically an, a kind of like an arena, because there had originally been a free music festival there with 52 bands and 80,000 attendees only a couple months before. But apparently the city of San Jose was super over that kind of shit because the Stones and the Grateful Dead were told that the city of San Jose was not in the mood for another large free concert for the foreseeable future. I yeah. love that phrasing too. Like they're not in the mood. Yeah, not in the not mood. Right now. Maybe check back later. Maybe maybe if you spend yeah. some more time doing foreplay, maybe then, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe, then, maybe yeah. a little bit Maybe then. if you didn't generate so much trash and not enough cash, we'd be interested. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly yeah, what that's, it is. That is the thing. It's a free concert. It's free for the concert goers. It's not free for anybody else. Yeah. No. Which is going to become an issue later. Yep. So following the initial idea put forth by Jefferson Airplane, they contacted the city of San Francisco regarding the possibility of having the concert in Golden Gate Park. And there was an arena there. In fact, before San Francisco had either of its stadiums, uh, formerly Candlestick Park and the Oakland Coliseum, uh, before either of those were available and active, they had a stadium called Kazar Stadium in Golden Gate Park. But the day that they wanted to hold the concert, there was a Chicago Bears and San Francisco 49ers football game. No. Duh, Bears. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning that on the day of the concert, a pro football game and the concert would take place on the same day in the same place. And this sounded like a pretty bad idea to everyone. Yep, 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 yep. So permits were never issued for the concert. And the venue was then changed to the Sears Point Raceway. But the company who owned the Sears Point Raceway, Filmways Incorporated, was like, oh, you say the Rolling Stones are coming? Your price just went up. They saw a chance to make some money and they demanded a $300,000 upfront cash deposit. But they also demanded all film distribution rights to all concert footage. And considering that the Stones were planning on filming the show to distribute themselves, the concert was moved yet again. The Altamont Raceway was chosen at the suggestion of its current owner, a local businessman named Dick Carter, which honestly, I think he was just like, yeah, I'll have a Rolling Stones concert. I'm going to be a fucking millionaire and didn't actually think it through. The concert was supposed to take place on Saturday, December 6th. They finalized their agreement with the Altamont Raceway on the night of Thursday, December 4th. Oh, wow. Yeah. And remember, it's free. There's no limit on how many people are going to be there. There are dozens of thousands of people headed to this place in two days. Yeah, uh 
thousands of people. There's nowhere to stay necessarily because you do have other things happening in the area that people, you know, if they're booking hotels. Well, so I don't know if you've ever been. I mean, you've driven through the Altamont because you've been to Northern California, right? Yeah. There's nothing there. Yeah. yeah. It, it is literally nowhere. There is no hotels. There is nothing within... 30 miles. So their plan is just that people are just going to camp? I think that you are yeah. misunderstanding what the summer of love was all about. If you think a bunch of hippies yeah, yeah. were like, I'm going to get a hotel. Hey, That's hey, fair. That's the fair. Marriott, please? <laughs> <laughs> this was also the problem for Woodstock, where people were there to camp and there was just no organization and nobody figured yeah. it out. Yeah. So that's the least of their issues. Because essentially the owner wanted all the glitz and glamour of hosting the concert but the venue was ill-equipped for the show for starters there were no portable bathrooms or additional facilities only a small set of bathrooms in the main building which were not nearly enough for the amount of people that were about to be there yeah. and they had no way to get enough portable restrooms there in time normally we just let our customers take a shit right on the track just like where the cars are going like that's that's it speeds things up you know no one really gets to take their time they also had no medical tents or first aid <laughs> services available oh no <laughs> and that's an essential for a concert that big it's gonna yes. also be a problem in just a minute yeah <laughs> with all the yeah. fucking drugs that are gonna be there do they have like food or water Nope. <laughs> yeah, the move also created a problem for the stage. See, they had designed their stage with the Sears Point Raceway in mind, and the Sears Point Raceway had the stage at the top of a small hill, which would provide a natural barrier between the audience and the bands. At the Altamont Speedway, the stage would now be at the bottom of a hill with the audience spread up the slope meaning that their stage that was only three feet high was going to come about to chest level to any audience member that wanted to get close to it, and there was nothing stopping them. Wow. And because of the short notice, there was no way to change the stage. So they had to find a way to secure the band's playing. Oh, no. Because the stage was so low, members of the Hells Angel Motorcycle Club, led by the Oakland Chapter and Sonny Barger, were asked to surround the stage to provide security. Now, there was a different understanding from multiple parties as to what that would entail. By some accounts, the Hells Angels were hired as security by the Rolling Stones' management on the recommendation of the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane, who had both previously used the Angels for security at performances without any incidents. And they decided that they were going to pay the Hells Angels $500 worth of beer. <laughs> That's, uh, this is a recipe for disaster. Also, what the fuck was that negotiation like? <laughs> we'll pay you $500 worth of beer. I want you to also remember that this is beer in the 1960s, which means it was way cheaper. Effectively, oh, they basically bought them 500 beers. <laughs> like it's, that's close to what it probably was. Now, here's a bit of a wrinkle in the story. A bit? A bit. You see, in the UK, there is a nonviolent fan club 
called the Hells Angels, basically admirers of what the U.S. angels were doing. But they're a nonviolent group. And so that was the group that some people had hired to handle concerts in the U.K., mm-hmm. which was essentially the equivalent of handling, like, hiring rent-a-cops. And that's part of why things went off without incident. The other thing to remember, too, is that the Hells Angels are still spread out at this time. And so depending on where the shows were for the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane, they could have gotten different chapters, which could have netted different results as well. Regardless, according to the Rolling Stones, they had no idea how violent these Hells Angels were reported to be prior to the show. And when asked about the situation, Sonny Barger has said, and I quote, I ain't no cop. I ain't never gonna ever pretend to be no cop. I didn't go there to police nothing, man. They told me if I could sit on the edge of the stage so nobody could climb over me, I could drink beer until the show was over. And that's what I went there to do. (laughs) Yikes. They told me I could go see the Rolling Stones for free and they'll give me $500 worth of beer. Yes, that's exactly it. And so what they do Uh. is they have the stage... And they just position all the Hell's Angels around the stage. So to get to or from the stage, you had to go through a Hell's Angel to do it. As the day went on, the crowd and the Hell's Angels got drunker and more violent. One of the lead singers, one of the opening bands, a woman named Denise Jukes from the band Ace of Cups, was six months pregnant and hit in the head by an empty beer bottle thrown from the crowd. She suffered a skull fracture. Fuck. And this, yeah, the Rolling Stones had to pay all of her ambulance and medical fees. Oh, my God. The angels, worried about violence from the crowd, started to arm themselves with sawed-off pool cues, motorcycle chains, and knives to drive the crowd farther back from the stage. What the fuck? It seemed to be okay for a moment until someone in the crowd accidentally toppled one of the angels' motorcycles, which made the angels even more aggressive, including towards performers. So Marty Balanoff of the Jeff- of Jefferson Airplane jumped off the stage and into essentially the mosh pit to try and stop one of the fights. But he was punched in the head and knocked unconscious by a Hell's Angel during the band's set because the Hell's Angel couldn't tell him apart from the concert goers. When their guitarist, Paul Cantor, commented on this from the stage, the angel who had punched Marty got up on stage and argued with Paul Cantor about it into the microphone, essentially derailing the end of their set. Wow. The Grateful Dead is backstage. They've seen all this happen and they were scheduled to perform after Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young and before the Rolling Stones. But after hearing about the violence, they refused to play and hastily left the venue, citing security concerns. No shit, because they are the most fucking peace and love band. They're high, definitely, on LSD when this is happening. So they're like, look, man, I'm going to be real with you. I just saw a dolphin punch Marty, and I am not going out there right now. During Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young's set, Stephen Stills was allegedly repeatedly stabbed in the leg by a Hell's Angel who was high on LSD and had a sharpened bicycle spoke. So just like a long sharpened wire and he's poking him from the edge of the stage in the leg. God. 
What did you do? Okay. All right. I just realized what you meant was like he did it repeatedly, rapidly. Because what I thought you were saying was just like he every so like every five minutes he was like. No, I, I think it is the latter. What I, the fuck? Yeah, I, I think he's just occasionally stabbing him, but he's playing, so he can't really stop. <laughs> so this is. Yes, it's this that the Rolling Stones helicopters land into. They waited till sundown to perform. And some stories say it's because they weren't all on the helicopters and they had to wait for multiples. But coming off the helicopter, Mick Jagger gets punched in the head by an audience member. prompting what? Yes. Prompting him to go on stage and say, just be cool down there in the front there. Please don't push around. But regardless, by the time they started their set, there were between 3,000 and 5,000 people pushed up to the front of the stage. Approximately 300,000 people attended the concert. Damn! Yeah. Uh, so yeah, approximately 300,000 people attended the concert. I don't know that they were all still there at that time because people did leave throughout the day. But I would say it's it's a hefty amount of people and they are all mad and have been there all day. A lot of them are on LSD. It's yeah. not good. This is terrifying. Yeah. So during the third song of their set, uh, Sympathy for the Devil, a fight erupted in the crowd right in front of the stage, prompting the Stones to pause their set while the Angels took care of it. Eventually, the band restarted the song and continued their set, and everything seemed to go okay until they started playing Under My Thumb. Now, this was one of their hits at the time. It's a classic. Uh, pretty upsetting lyrics. Yeah. But um, many fans at this point tried to get on the stage, figuring that there weren't enough angels to keep them all off the stage, including 18-year-old Meredith Hunter, who is, uh, I know it's his name is Meredith, that it is a he, just a heads mm. up, to avoid confusion. Cool. The angels pushed them back into the crowd, and in most cases, the people were con content to be pushed back one time. They were not going to try and come back at it, especially because the angels basically punched people until they got back in the crowd. They just fought them back. So Meredith had his girlfriend with him at the concert and according to her she says that she tried to calm him down and pull him back further into the crowd but he was too high on drugs to understand what she was asking of him and he tried to make his way back towards the stage to try and get back onto the stage again and the angels started to walk towards him to fight him back one more time at which point, according to video evidence, he pulled out a gun and pointed it towards the stage. What? Now, there are rumors that he had been discussing a plan to shoot Mick Jagger earlier in the day, but those cannot be substantiated. So, he pulls a gun and Hell's Angel Alan Passaro, after seeing him draw the gun, pulls out a knife and charges him from the side, knocking the pistol down and stabbing Meredith twice in the back, killing oh, him. God oh, my God. Damn. There is video evidence of all of this where you basically see him kind of try to tackle him and get the gun away, and he ends up stabbing him somewhere between two and five times. And he is... 
I mean, you can see in the video and you can watch it online. It's pretty interesting. You see Meredith pull the gun and you see the crowd scatter because here's the thing. Knocking the gun out of somebody's hand sounds great and all, but he has a loaded gun in a crowd. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, any that's which true. way. If it goes off at all, someone's, someone's getting shot get with Someone's a gun. getting shot with a gun. You're right. Yeah, and most likely, it's Mick Jagger. Now, once they got him down, supposedly they stabbed him and then kicked him a bit on the ground. <laughs> not, Fuck. Not great. But they did recover the gun and turn it over to the police who were right outside the venue. And they did get the body out and Hunter, uh, Meredith Hunter's autopsy confirmed that not only did he have the gun and was intending to shoot people with it, but he was high out of his mind on meth. Meth that he may have purchased from a Hells Angels person. But Yikes. we can't prove that. We don't know where he got the meth. Uh, but he was That's high out of his... That's how they knew where his weak point was. There That's how go. they knew his weakness was getting stabbed two to five times. Oh two to God. five times. Uh, but yes, so he was high on methamphetamines. So... They arrested Pissarro and he was tried for murder in the summer of 1971, but he was acquitted after a jury viewed concert footage because it actually took two years for them to finish editing all that concert footage only to find that they actually had caught the murder on tape. And so and showing him brandishing the revolver and aiming it at people. And so they concluded that Pissarro acted in self-defense, both for himself and for everybody else. In 2003, the Alameda County Sheriff's Office initiated a two-year investigation into the possibility of a second Hell's Angel having taken part in the stabbing. But finding insufficient support for this, they concluded that Pissarro acted alone and in self-defense, and they closed the case for good May 25th of 2005. And thus ends the 1960s for the Hell's Angels. Wow. God damn, that, dude. Uh, That's fucking wild. I do want to imagine that the Rolling Stones showed up and realized that the only thing the American Hell's Angels and the British Hell's Angels had in common was just fucked up teeth. And that is... That's, <laughs> Two different reasons. Two entirely different reasons, but they both just Yeah, they really, were like, they look the same. <laughs> Pretty much the same. Oh, my God. This is a story that is so absolutely famous. Like, just tremendously, like, it is so famous that I think anyone with a, a, a passing um, kind of knowledge of the Hells Angels is at least sort of aware of this event but even I didn't I didn't know all of the details like me neither $500 worth of beer yeah is, is, and this guy put his life on the line yeah to go to go get this gun just oh my god what a fucking nightmare here's the like crazy thing so I grew up in the Bay Area I have to drive past the Altamont every time I see my parents um I grew up hearing this story as a cautionary tale against going to music festivals just just in <laughs> okay in general and yeah. a cautionary tale against bikers because the version i always heard was the hell's angels stabbed a guy i didn't hear the hell's angels disarmed a man high on meth and saved Mick Jagger like that's not the version people tell they just talk about yeah, how the no. Hells Angels stabbed a guy and I think that's kind of framed the narrative a little bit so yeah 
I will say, so I, I am born, uh, I was born in, in the town of Indio, California, which is where they do Coachella every single year, um, except for this year. <laughs> but they do this festival every single year. And I will say that they hire, Coachella hires my actual family, like not just my family, but locals from the city. Um, and so they have, they are roughly paying my family about $500 worth of beer. They're not giving it to them in beer form. It's money form. And then it turns into $500 (laughs) worth of beer. But so a lot has stayed the same from music festivals is what I'm learning right now. Yeah. There are concert. There are also two other incidents where, um, after the stabbing people really, a lot of people try to leave the concert very quickly. Um, yeah oh yeah did people get trampled there's like one trampling death but then there's also there was an irrigation ditch dug along the side of the concert and uh one of the concert goers was high on lsd and drowned in the irrigation ditch oh no yeah so it's there's multiple deaths involved essentially Kids, if you're going to do drugs, have a safe person. Have a babysitter handy. Don't bring a gun to a concert. Yeah. Yeah. And don't Don't do that. Don't do meth and have a gun. Yeah. Please don't do that. Yeah. I will say, as you're talking about this, uh, I once tried to plan a wedding with no money. And (laughs) we hired the Hells Angels (laughs) to, 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 to take people to their seats. Well, the whole time you're talking about this, about like, okay, this venue is too expensive and this venue didn't want. And so we just went to a public park, like legit. My at the time partner was like, well, we don't have money, so we'll just do like a potluck wedding and just get porta potties. And I was like, this is the worst wedding of all time. We'll just do a I flash do not want mob this. wedding. Everyone shows up and then the wedding just happens. <laughs> That's pretty much what was going on. Oh I was like, God. I don't, I don't like this. So pretty much the wedding cut, co- like disaster was bound to happen. Yeah. I want, I want, I want the Hells Angels to be the ushers at my wedding. When they're just like, just the terrifying man being like, are you, a, are you on the side of the groom or the bride? <laughs> <laughs> or do you want to sit on the stage? I mean, you could sit them on the stage so that no one could stop your wedding. Be like, speak now or get poked with a sharpened bicycle spoke. Hey, Andrea, I do want to say I do, but I have been stabbed five times in the leg. Can you stop it? I'm I'm just imagining ushers, but we've braided flowers into all their beards so they're more festive for the wedding. Yeah, I don't know if this is fucking... I just, I, as soon as I walk down the aisle and get up to where I'm supposed to be, they just fucking punch me in the back of the head like a Mick Jagger. Oh my God. This sounds awful. I, um, I didn't know that this was where this was going, but I, I, uh, speaking of music festivals, uh, if we ever plan our own, if we ever plan the cult podcast music festival, um, (laughs) I have found an artist that I would like to bring, uh, and he actually has songs dedicated to the three of us. And I was wondering if I could play them for you. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. So here's a song that he's dedicated to me. Here we go. Armando. Armando Poop. I hate it. Armando. Poop, poop, poop. 
So that's the one that's that's for me. But he don't. I mean, don't worry. He has one. Okay, here's the song that's dedicated to you, Paige. Are you ready? Oh, jeez. Oh yeah, oh of course. All right. And if you want to this I want to hear Andreas. This is this ca- encapsulates Andreas entire vibe. Here I don't go. like it cuz they sound my name wrong. Andrea, Andrea, When did we get these? <laughs> This is the song that I played at your wedding, by the way. <laughs> oh, so yeah, if that guy ever, if we ever do the Colt Podcast Music Festival, we got to get the man who sings about pu- poop, puke, and pee to come perform for us. We, so what, how, what, what are those? Have, how do we get those? I have no idea, but I'm pretty sure they're pretty easy to own. I think I could just hit them up and pay him like a dollar or $500 worth of beer for the whole set. <laughs> Oh, okay. I was like, did somebody send those to us? Like, what happened? No, no these predate us, I think. They're from the 90s. Oh. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Oh. That'd be terrifying. It's just some guy that just makes those. It's, And he has so many. If you ever want, um, if you want to find out what I'm talking about, there's a man who has a Spotify account. And uh, he made, I would say, roughly three to 400 different songs Um and so if you want to find yours, just type in the, and then whatever your first name is, poop song. So like for mine, I typed in the Armando poop song and it was there and it was a thing that existed. Oh man. Some people have too much time on their hands. <laughs> yeah. This episode is uh, brought to you by the Colt Podcast Music Festival. <laughs> um, hey, do you want to get the- stabbed two to five times? <laughs> Do you want to do you, do you want to do you want the security to make you feel wildly unsafe at all times? <laughs> well then come on down to the desert of Las Vegas where we'll be practicing black magic and also the Rolling Stones are headlining. The cult poop via astral projection. Via astral projection. <laughs> uh. Cult poop cast puts the ass in astral projection. <laughs> Oh my god, no. Of course. Of course our our uh our episodes are brought to you as always by our wonderful amazing Patreon donors. Bow, bow, bow. Um and this specific episode is brought to you in part by our wonderful Patreon donor Erica Dexter. Bow, bow, bow. Erica, Erica, poop, poop, poop. No. Pooping and a pee <laughs> no. on Erica, do, Well, I was, I was more concerned with the last name Dexter. Where now I'm like, what kind of? Wait, where'd she get that money? Was it from killing people? <laughs> How was this? Oh man. Check the air conditioning unit. Isn't that where he hit all his samples? That's where he did hit, hit all the blood samples. All the right. blood samples. Yeah. Oh, my That's God. True. I hope his apartment yeah. never got hot in Florida. <laughs> I hope he never needed to use it because otherwise it would have smelled very coppery. Um, yeah. And as you definitely heard uh, in the beginning, in the show before the show, uh, we're very happy to announce publicly that we are partnering with Rooster Teeth. Woo! 
Yeah. Yeah, we've kind of been on the DL for a while, but like we thought it's time to go public. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rooster Teeth has been keeping us. They've been fucking us on the side. And no, I'm kidding. And now terrible. it's Facebook official. So <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we're very, very, very hyped to be able to announce this. We've been working with Rooster Teeth um, for some time, doing some stuff on the side through Good Morning from Hell. And then we just uh, we were just the moderators for the True Crime panel um, for RTX at Home, which was beyond amazing it was so much fun and i had an absolute blast i had so much fun as well yeah i hope everyone had as good a time as we did because i had a great time it's amazing uh starting october 5th you will be able to listen to our podcast on rooster teeth's official website roosterteeth.com um but don't worry this doesn't change anything nothing is actually going to be that different you will still be able to listen to cult podcasts for free wherever you listen to podcasts in fact the only thing that's really changing is that our show is going to be available more places and we will have more opportunities to do some pretty wild ass bizarro shit it's really somebody's bankrolling these dumbass ideas is really what's happening i'm so excited (laughs) Oh, man. So there there will be a few changes coming up, but nothing is going to affect the way that you listen to the show. You will forever be able to listen to us for free um, everywhere you want to, uh, Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen to it, even on our website for free at coldpodcastshow.com. So, yeah, we'll keep you updated as things move forward, but we're so, 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 so beyond happy to announce that. And we just want you to know, honey, that yes, things are changing, but we will always love you. Yeah, you're not my real podcast dad. <laughs> I'm sure Rooster Teeth is gonna be happy when they listen to us, and they're like, "Did they just call us a stepdad? Is that what they're <laughs> more like a step zaddy? Am I right, Rooster Teeth? Bow, get it with this podcast. I don't. Yeah, I like can't wait to anymore. announce next week when we lost the partnership <laughs> because I said they were fucking us on the low, and we did this. <laughs> Anyway, um, but we also have some other really big and really awesome news coming up for the next month. Yeah. This Halloween, we're hosting a virtual live show with our good friends over at the Horror Virgin. This double feature is part of Panic Fest's online Tricks and Treats event. Because of the pandemic, a lot of us aren't able to properly celebrate our favorite time of year. However, now we have an opportunity to have some spooky fun and to help out some friendly folks in Kansas City. 25% of each purchase goes to help keep the Screenland Armor, one of our favorite theaters in America, in business. Additionally, we'll be releasing some limited edition merch. From now until Thursday, October 8th, you can pre-order your own piece of Horror Virgin and Cult podcast history. Tickets are on sale now for $20, and our shirts are available for $25. However, we're offering a bundle for $40 where you can get both. It's going to be so much fun, and we can't wait to see all of you there. More information is available at cultpodcastshow.com. Remember that these shirts are super limited edition and are only available for pre-order until October 8th. See you all soon. Yeah. We're super hyped. These shirts are fucking bananas. I'm so proud of them. Yeah, Uh, they're fire designs. I I worked on the design for a while. We got a lot of input from everyone on all the shows, which is a real fun text thread to have. But then also the shirts are printed uh, on these really, really super comfortable shirts that are pretty size inclusive. They'll go from, I believe, uh, small through 4XL. I think we might have extra small 
but I will have to make sure about that. Um, and uh, also the, the point of doing pre-orders is that there is no waste. You know, every shirt that gets made will be used and that'll be super, 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 super awesome. Um, so yeah, like Paige said, go to coltpodcastshow.com for more info on that. Um, I'm going to say if you want to send me... <laughs> If you want to send me your favorite patch that the Hells Angels don't talk about, you know, like, um, <laughs> like, like who could, uh, who could tie the fastest knot, um, who could cook the best meth, you know, stuff like that. Uh, what, like what, what, what's your favorite patch that the Hells Angels have that you might not hear about publicly? You can send that to me on Instagram and Twitter at Mondo Does Stuff. That's M-A-N-D-O Does Stuff. Hey guys, if you want to send me what you would do for $500 <laughs> worth of beer, <laughs> I want to hear about it. What would you do? What's the weirdest, craziest thing you would do for $500 worth of beer? I love the year. This is 2020's version of what would you do for a Klondike bar? It's what, would, <laughs> what would you do to forget that everything is fucking terrible? Who would you fight for $500 worth of beer? Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger. Would it be Bigfoot? Would it be Mick Jagger? Would it be... Yes. <laughs> no. It's, I'm gonna fuck up Pete Townshend. Like I'm one of like he's one of Pete Townshend's guitars. I'm just gonna smash it. Because he does that. He smashes his guitars a whole lot. Bonus question, who would you fight for free? Um <laughs> Yeah, send that to me on all the things at Sundress Comic. Uh also check out my Instagram at Andrea Gazetta. This week I will also be launching pre-orders in on my website at andreagazetta.com slash store for the paintings I made last year about living in a studio apartment with my boyfriend and dog. Surprise! We're all in a studio apartment with our friends and family. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> this is your whole life now. Yeah. Um, Even if you live in a multi-bedroom house, emotionally, you are stuck in a studio, studio apartment. apartment. <laughs> With your large boyfriend and dog. Emotionally, of course. Yeah, I thought that uh, the recontextualizing of having to be in your apartment at all times after I made an entire art series about being in my apartment at all times would be very interesting. So I decided to turn that series of paintings into a little art book. So go ahead and pick that up. Uh, I think we're going to, I'm probably going to do pre-orders also till October 8th-ish. Uh, I'll have more details next week and also on my Instagram. Yay! If you have a crazy music festival story and you <laughs> want to tell me about it, I want to hear about it. I one time was on a, a podcast with a friend of the show and recent America's Got Talent star Alex Hooper, and he revealed that one time at a music festival, he thought he had been mortally wounded, but instead was just covered in ketchup. <laughs> so if you have a story like that, I want to hear it. I want to hear all about it. The only time you can be mortally wounded and covered in ketchup is if you are a hot dog. That is <laughs> true. That is your. Or blood. if you fall into a a ketchup vat. Yeah, yeah, like That's like true. a hot dog, the Joker. <laughs> yes. You could send those to at Page Wesley on Twitter or at Rampage Wesley on Instagram. Yes, and if you want to follow us as a show on Instagram, you can do so by going to at Colt Podcast. Or at Cult Podcast Show on Twitter. You can also send us an email to Cult Podcast Show at Gmail. 
Ticketmaster.com. And if you want to send us tickets to your favorite fake free concert. Or $500 worth of beer. I don't. <laughs> or if, if you want to send us $500 worth of beer, you could send that to... <laughs> 3756 West Avenue 40, Sweet K, number 237, Light the Shining, Los Angeles, California, 90065. I will also accept White Claw. Thank you so much. Oh, God. Andrea's a White Claw <laughs> girl now. I've never tried one because I stopped drinking before they came out, and I feel like they're exactly the kind of thing that would have gotten me in trouble a lot. <laughs> yeah. She delicious. drank a tall boy of White Claw last night. <laughs> what flavor? Uh, Grapefruit. Ooh. Yeah. I'm mm. anyway, uh, I'm gonna say for this one, don't drink five hundred dollars worth of five hundred dollars worth of beer. It's like five K and then try to police a concert. Don't do that. <laughs> and don't drink the Kool-Aid. Bye. Bye. <laughs> 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 Gotta have my bud. <laughs>